0: Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Equipped to Serve, a study in Paul's pastoral epistles. Here's Pastor Nick.
1: If you would please open in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. That's where we're going to be studying today. We're currently in a series, which we started a couple weeks ago, called Equip to Serve. And in this series, what we're doing is we're studying verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the pastoral epistles, which are a series of letters written by the Apostle Paul to two young pastors, Timothy and Titus. And so we're, we've begun this series by looking at the letter of First Timothy, and we're working our way through it today. We're picking up where we left off last last week, which is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8, and we'll make it through the end of the chapter today. So open up your Bibles there, and please bow your heads with me, and let's pray as we open God's Word. Lord, as we open your word as we come to you, Lord, we do so with a sense of awe and reverence, and we do so with a desire for you to speak to us. And Lord, we want to avail ourselves to you, our hearts and our minds, that you would speak to us, that we would receive what you have for us in this text. And Lord, that by your spirit, you would do a transforming and encouraging and instructive work in our lives. Lord, please let this be part of your work in our lives to transform us and change us into the people you desire us to become. So we give ourselves our attention to you during this time, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 1918, the magazine Ladies' Home Journal wrote an article. In this article, they gave advice to ladies about which colors boys and girls preferred and which were more suited to their genders. And here's what the article said. It said pink being a more decided and stronger color, is well suited for boys, while blue, which is dedic- which is delicate and dainty, is prettier and therefore preferred by girls. That's interesting, right? Because nowadays, we tend to associate pink as being a color for girls and blue with being a color for boys. But apparently, it wasn't always that way. A hundred years ago, people thought differently. They thought that pink was considered masculine, blue was considered feminine. And this is just one of many examples of something we call gender stereotypes, which are, are things where we make stereotypes about genders, right? So things that include things like, well, you know, men like football and cars, women like flowers and Whatever else it is that women like, I'm sorry, I was just, I really, I did, I actually put a lot of thought. Well, what do women like? I'm, I don't know. So, oh, whatever it is that you ladies like, okay. Or, you know, here's another one that like, women are emotional, whereas men are less emotional. Now, there are some truth to stereotypes, right? That's in general. The fact is that there are more people statistically who are men who like football than there are women who like football. But here's where it gets tricky. What if you're a man and you don't like football? What if you're a woman who likes cars and football and the color blue, but you're not, and and you're not very emotional? Does that mean that you're less of a woman than other women? Or if you're a man who likes, uh, who doesn't like cars or sports, but you like art and flowers, does that mean you're not actually a man? Maybe you're a woman trapped in a man's body? See, we live in a society today, the world we live in today, there's this increasing amount of confusion, about gender and sexuality and what makes someone a man or what makes someone a woman. In the passage we're studying today here in 1 Timothy, the Bible has a few things to tell us about the roles of men and women in the church. And what we're going to see is that as followers of Jesus who have the word of God to guide us as a lamp before our feet that illuminates our path, what the word of God does is it causes us as Christians in the church to form an alternative community. An alternative community which follows God's directions, the directions of God's word, and which embodies the values of God's kingdom rather than the ever-changing dictates of popular culture. It's been said, and I love this description, it's been said that the church is a colony of heaven in the country of death a colony of heaven in the country of death. Paul the Apostle, in his letter to the Philippians, he famously said that as Christians, we are citizens of heaven, even though we currently live here on earth. And what the church is, it's not just a place that we come to to worship and study. The church is more than that. It's an alternative community, a colony of heaven here on earth in which we live by different principles. We have our own unique culture, which is shaped by Jesus and by the word of God. And that is true wherever the church is found anywhere around the world and at any time in history. So what does that look like in practice? We're going to see a few things in our text today that will answer that question for us. The title of today's message is Saved Through the Birth of a Child. Saved Through the Birth of a Child. And what we're going to see today in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, is that the church is an alternative community, a colony of heaven made up of people redeemed through the birth of a child. I'll give you that sentence one more time. What I like to do, I like to give you a sentence every week that summarizes what the passage is about, what we're going to learn. And then we walk through that sentence as our guide for studying the passage uh, in front of us. So one more time, the church is an alternative community, a colony of heaven made up of people redeemed through the birth of a child. So let's break that down. Let's look at the first part of that, the church. First of all, let's talk about the church. Paul begins this section in verse 8 where he says, I desire that men in every place should pray. Now, here Paul is picking up on a topic which he brought up in the first half of this chapter. In the first half of chapter two, Paul brought up this topic of prayer. Basically, here's what he said. In light of the gospel, in light of what Jesus has done for us to save us, what should that cause us to do? He says it should inspire us to pray for other people, and not just to pray in general, but specifically to pray for their salvation, that they would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. But think about this. Who are these people Paul's talking about who should be doing the praying, right? Who are the prayers that Paul thinks should be praying? Well, he's talking about Christians. Christians are the ones who should be doing this. Christians, those who make up the church. Now remember, 1 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Timothy. Timothy was the leader of the church at this time in Ephesus, And this letter was written by Paul to Timothy to help Timothy navigate some of the challenges he was facing as a pastor and as the leader of this church. So here in this section, Paul is going to talk about what kinds of attitudes and actions should characterize the public gatherings of the church. And we know this because he says here in verse 8 that he desires that in every place where men pray, they would pray in a certain way, with holy hands lifted up, without anger, and without quarreling. Now, what he means when he says men in every place should pray, he's not saying, you know, make sure station a man out on the corner of 119 and station another on the top of Rabbit Mountain, station another over there. We've got to get men in every location praying. no, no. See, when he used this phrase about coming together to pray, understand that this was a colloquialism, that the Jewish people and the early Christians used for their church services. So the early Christians, like the ancient Jews, they referred to their worship services, their public gatherings for worship and prayer, they referred to it as coming together to pray. Now, in our society, we refer to it as a worship service. But think about that. When we say worship service, but it's not like the only thing we're doing at these services is worshiping through song. There are a lot of other things that we do during these services. In the same way, when they talked about coming together to pray, that was kind of their shorthand way of referring to their public gatherings, their worship services, even though there was a lot more going on at those services than just praying. So Paul's talking about here what should happen when the church gathers for worship, for prayer, etc. What Paul says here in verse 8 is he says, I desire that men in every place should pray in this way. So what he's saying is, when the church gathers, when the church comes together, here's how I want you to conduct yourselves. Here's what I want you to do. Now, it's interesting. When you look over the last 2,000 years of Christian history, the, the church, the followers of Jesus, would gather all the way back to the time of the apostles. And what's so interesting is, all the way from back then up until this present day, Christians have always had the same basic elements as part of their worship services. So even from the time of apostles, even up to today, you know, Christians, when they gather, they have always worshiped in song. They've always prayed. That's been an aspect of our services. Hearing from God's word. That's another part of the service. Fellowship or community support. The Greek word there is koinonia, which means mutuality, sharing together. And of course, communion, taking part in the Lord's Supper. So now, different streams of Christianity have done these things in slightly different ways, or they've emphasized certain elements more than other elements. But these same basic elements or practices have been in the Christian church since the beginning and up until this present day. And yet, it's important to recognize that when we talk about the church— Yes, we're talking about a gathering that you attend. In some cases, we talk about a building that you come to. But more than that, it's also a community that you belong to. For example, in the book of Acts, when it talks about all the Christians in general— It refers to them as the church, right? This happened to the church, meaning all Christians in general, because to be a Christian is to be part of the church, the body of Christ, the people who have been redeemed by Jesus and who have committed their lives to following him and making him the Lord of their lives. Okay, so the church is a community that you become part of when you put your faith in Jesus. And what the church does is that in every place around the world, the church gathers to do certain things in order to encourage each other and to grow and to be equipped to fulfill God's callings on our lives. So the church, another way that's referred to in the Bible, and, and we'll see here in 1 Timothy, it is the household of God, right? The household of God. God is our Father. We have become children of God through faith in Jesus, and as his children, that makes us brothers and sisters. So the question is, how are we to conduct ourselves in God's household? What are the attitudes and actions which are to characterize our public gatherings and our conduct as Christians in the church? And so that brings us to the next part of our sentence. The church is an alternative community, an alternative community. Look at what he says in verse eight. He says, I desire that in every place the men should pray. How? Lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now in the ancient world, when people prayed, whether they were Jews or pagans or Christians, the posture they would take when they prayed was not the same as we tend to do in our culture today. For them, the general posture of prayer, and this is true again, Christians, pagans, and Jews, they would raise their hands up in the air with their palms outstretched towards heaven and their hands lifted up. Now in our culture, when we pray, we tend to do what? We fold our hands and close our eyes, bow our heads. I'm not saying that's bad or that one's better than the other. They had different purposes. They communicate something different. So by doing that, what we're saying is we want to not be distracted by other things when we pray. We want to focus our attention on God. But just understand that in the ancient world, when they prayed, they didn't fold their hands and bow their heads. Rather, they lifted their hands and oftentimes they would lift their face up to the sky as well. But Paul here, he's, he's a lot less concerned about the posture you take when you pray. What his real concern is, is about the posture of your heart when you pray and when you gather with other believers, when you're in the church. And so he says, when you lift up your hands, when you pray, here's how I want you to do it. I want you to do it with holy hands. Now, to have holy hands meant that you were right before God, right? That you were right before God. It says in Psalm 24, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So to have holy hands meant to conduct yourself in a way that was right before God. It meant to have nothing to do with anything that was impure or unclean. So as followers of Jesus, here's what's interesting. The Bible tells us that we are invited as now children of God to come to God freely and with confidence, like a child would come to their father. You're you're invited to come right into the throne room of God to seek grace and mercy in your time of need. And yet, though we're invited in, the barriers between us and God have been removed. It is important to remember that when we pray, we are approaching the God of the universe, the one who is holy, who is set apart. And so we should approach him with reverence and with a sense of humility. Now, in addition to being right before God, Paul also encourages the men to conduct themselves in a way that is right in regard to other people, without anger or without quarreling. So as holy hands refers to your relationship with God being right Being without anger and quarreling refers to how we conduct ourselves in regard to other people. Here in this section, there's an important thing to remember as you're reading this, and it's going to apply as we go throughout this section. Paul is addressing things that were issues within the Ephesian church, right? He's not just like picking things out at random. He is addressing things which apparently were issues within the church in Ephesus. And yet, the principles that he puts forth in response apply to all people at all times in all cultures. Now, apparently, some of the men in Ephesus had a problem with being angry and quarrelsome. Some of them, even when they came to church, they were acting in a way that was less than holy and wasn't pleasing to God. And Paul is saying, that's not how it ought to be. It shouldn't be that way. Because the church is to be an alternative community. We're called to be different and distinct from the world around us. We play by different rules than the world around us plays by. Now, the time we live in right now, you know, as Americans living in the United States right now, this time, this age that we live in has been dubbed or described as the age of outrage. How many of you can relate to that, right? You you know what that means, age of outrage. Yeah, I get that. This week, by the way, Harvard Business Review came out with an article about this culture of outrage and how American society in general is becoming angrier and more hostile. And they're talking about how this culture of outrage that is growing in the United States is affecting workplace dynamics, family dynamics, and society at large. You see, rather than having civil dialogue more and more in the United States, you know, rather than assuming the best about people— Our culture here in the United States is increasingly suspect of others and increasingly characterized by outrage. We're outraged at this. We're outraged at that. You see what that guy did? Outrageous, right? Can you believe it? Every day we wake up. What's the first thing we do? You grab your phone. You start scrolling to find out, what am I supposed to be upset about today? What should I be outraged about? Those on one end of the political spectrum are outraged at people on the other end. Those on that end are outraged at the people on the other end. Neighbors are outraged. They can't believe the audacity of their neighbor to put that thing next to the other. Thing outrageous, family members are outraged. I experienced it, you know, with my own extended family. People are outraged. I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they didn't do this. I'm never talking to them again. That's the culture we live in, and you know what? It's really hard because that's the water we swim in every day. As that happens, you know, it's really hard to not let it just affect you. And you know what else? It's also really hard because truly, there are a lot of things in the world to be upset about. But if we're not careful, this culture of outrage can work its way into our hearts and it can work its way into our church. And rather than treating each other as brothers and sisters bound together by the love of Jesus, we can get angry and quarrelsome with each other. And we can say, well, I didn't like what that guy said. I'm out of here. That person didn't acknowledge me. That that person did something wrong. I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. I'm going to quit. But listen, to do that, to take on that culture of outrage, is just to embody the, the attitude of the culture at large. As Christians, as people who have been redeemed by Jesus, who are being transformed by the Holy Spirit, we're called to be an alternative community. Rather than being conformed to this world, we're called to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may know what is good and pleasing to God. In other words, the church is to be an alternative community where we love what God loves and where This is a place where people show each other grace. Imagine that, showing each other grace, where we're long-suffering towards one another, where we spur each other on to love and good works. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul describes what it would look like for the church to be this alternative community which is shaped by the gospel. And here's what he says. Just picture this. What if the church was like this, is compared to the culture of outrage that permeates our society at large. Now these are Paul's instructions for men in the church. Now in the next verse, he turns to giving instructions to women in the church. He says in verse 9, likewise also that women should adorn themselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. Again, remember, Paul is addressing issues that were present, that had come up in the church in Ephesus. And yet the principles he lays out here are given to all people at all times. Now, apparently in Ephesus, what was happening is that some women were treating church gatherings as an opportunity to draw attention to themselves by the way that they dressed, either to get the attention of men or to show off their wealth. See, as Paul's point here is to say that the church is to be an alternative community, a community that plays by different rules, has a different culture than the culture at large. And so in a world that is constantly saying, look at me, look at what I have, look at what I've done. The church is to be a place where we gather together and we say, let us together look to Jesus and what he has done. Rather than drawing attention to ourselves, we gather to give attention and focus to Jesus. And because of this, the church is to be a place where class distinctions disappear. Class distinctions disappear. That's what the braided hair thing is all about, the gold and pearls. In that culture, these things were status symbols. They were symbols that said that you were part of the upper class. You see, but the early Christian church was a place where aristocrats and slaves treated each other as equals because the ground is even at the foot of the cross. In the book of Acts chapter 20, there's this really interesting thing, which is really easy to look over as you're reading, right? Because you're reading, you see a bunch of names, right? Oh, some Names of some people that I've never met and maybe I'll see them in heaven. We'll see, right? And so you just keep reading, but you don't, realize the significance of what's there. There's an instance of that in Acts chapter 20, where we read about these two men from the church in Thessalonica who were travel partners with Paul. Their names are Aristarchus and Secundus of Thessalonica. You can read about there in Acts chapter 20. Now what's significant about these men are their names. There's a lot bound up in those names. You see, Aristarchus, just hear that word. What does it sound like? Aristocracy. It literally means "prince. And again, it is the word from which we get our word, aristocracy. His name tells us that he was a member of the ruling class. He probably came from a wealthy, powerful family. He was nobility. And then we read about this other guy, Secundus. His name literally means number two. That's what it means. Like he doesn't have an actual name. His name is a number because he's a slave. See, it was common for people to name their slaves numbers. Primus, secundus, meaning number one, and number two, and so on. So here you have this man who doesn't even have a name, if you will. He's just given a number because he's a slave. And he's with this man whose name means prince, a member of the aristocracy. And yet these two men, a nobleman and a slave, they're equals in the Lord. They're serving him side by side together. You see, here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is not trying to give fashion advice to women in the church. Rather, he is giving them principles for a way of living that is shaped by a whole life response to the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. That brings us back to our sentence. See, the church is an alternative community. It's a colony of heaven here in this country of death. You see, Paul encourages women instead to adorn themselves, he says in verse 10, with good works. It reminds us of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, Let your light so shine before others that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Again, the idea here being that there's a contrast being made between saying, look, you can act in a way that draws attention to you, that makes people impressed with you or makes them in awe of you, or you can conduct yourself in such a way that it brings attention and awe and reverence to God. Remember that phrase? The church is a colony of heaven in the country of death. We are an alternative community, a community that operates on different values, that has different goals than society at large, because we are people uniquely in all the world who have a hope that goes beyond this life, and that hope gives us purpose, and it gives us direction for how we live here and now. He says in verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now again, remember, everything Paul's saying here in this section is in the context of the public gatherings of the church. And Paul seems to be in this section addressing topics which had come up as issues and problems there in the church in Ephesus. So just as Paul told men in verse 8 not to be quarrelsome. Here he instructs the women to learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now remember, in the public gatherings of the church, several things took place. But one of the main things that took place then as now was teaching, a sermon, someone explaining or expounding upon a section of scripture. And it seems that amongst both the men and the women there in the church in Ephesus, there was a tendency to argue with the person who was teaching To push back and argue and and be disruptive during the message. Now here in verse 11, this word that is translated quietly, it's the same word which if you look back up at verse 2, if you got your Bible in front of you, look up at verse 2, this word that's translated quietly is the same word which in verse 2 is translated as peaceful or peaceably. So what Paul is instructing the women in the church is that during the time of teaching, during the sermon, the message, they should receive the message rather than being contentious or arguing with the person who is teaching. Now listen, some people read this verse and they say, see, this is what's wrong with Christianity. It's archaic. It's patriarchal. It tells women to shut their mouths and and be submissive to men. Well, first of all, it's really important to point out that this verse is not Teaching that all women have to be subject to all men, right? This is not teaching a general submission of all women to all men. This is referring to the general demeanor of the heart and conduct during the teaching portion of the worship service. Furthermore, in Paul's letter to Titus, another pastor, he touches on a similar issue and he makes it clear there that a woman's submission is not to all men in general, but to her own husband. And also, it's important to point this out. This verse is not saying that women can never, ever speak in church because we know from Paul's other letters and from the book of Acts that women did speak in the church and that it was actually encouraged for them to do so in certain settings. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives instructions to women about when they pray and prophesy during church gatherings. And yet, Paul says here in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Again, the context here is in the church. And the church is what? It's an alternative community which plays by different rules than society in general. In the church, men and women have different but complementary roles. Now, it's important that we read this verse, these verses, in light of the other things the Bible has to say about men and women. For example, in Galatians chapter 3, we are told that in Christ, men and women are equal in dignity, value, and worth. And yet, though they are equal, they're still different. They're different. They have different strengths. They have different abilities. And in the church, the household of God, they have different but complementary functions and roles to play. Not every man is qualified to be a teacher just because he's a man. And certainly there are many women who are gifted teachers and leaders, and there are avenues for them to use those gifts in the church in different ways. But the wording that is used here is really interesting. Because the words, to teach and exercise authority, did you notice that? Those are the words that are used there in verse 12. To teach and exercise authority. Those are the same words which are used in the next section, in chapter 3, to describe the role and function of elders in the church. That's what elders do. They teach and exercise authority. Now remember, when this letter was written, there were no chapter breaks, right? Paul didn't say, and that's the end of chapter 2. Now I'm starting chapter three, right? No, no, no. This was continuous section, continuous thought. We added those things later to help us navigate the Bible, and they are helpful. But just understand that when this was written, it was a continuous thing. So from the end of chapter two and into chapter three is this continuous section. It's all talking about the same thing, leadership and organization of the church. And in chapter three, Paul tells us that the role of an elder is to do two things, to teach and to exercise authority in managing and leading the church. So what Paul's saying here in chapter 2, verse 12, is that the highest office, the task, the, the office that is tasked with teaching doctrine and leading the church is reserved for godly, qualified men, just in the same way that the priests of Israel were men. Now, what I want you to know is that here at Whitefields, we very much value and esteem women. We have women involved in leading and teaching throughout our church. And we follow what the Bible says here about the office and role of elder. So when we read here in 1 Timothy, understand what we read here in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. This is, not about, this is not about value. It's not about competence. It's about order and function and design. And a good example of this, by the way, the best example, is found in Jesus Jesus himself. Throughout the New Testament, we are told that Jesus is God. And yet, in Philippians chapter 2, we're told that Jesus, even though he is equal to the Father, he also submitted himself in function and role to the Father's leadership and guidance and direction. And his submission didn't mean that he was less than the Father. It was a matter of function. So even within the Trinity, Think about this. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. They're all equally God. And yet there is an order in which the Son submits to the Father. And the Son sends the Spirit. And the Spirit glorifies the Father. And the Father exalts the Son. There's no competition. Each person of the Trinity has a unique role to play, which the others do not play. But their roles don't mean that one is better or more important than the others. In the same way as men and women in the church, we are equal and yet God has established this order similar to what we see in God himself in the Trinity. Now, there are people who look at this and they push back and they say, well, listen, that was just for back then. It was a cultural thing and therefore it doesn't apply today. Or they might say, well, that was back then because women didn't have access to education in the same way that they do today. Or they might say, Any distinction in roles or functions is a result of sin and the curse which Jesus came to abolish and do away with. Well, to all of those pushbacks, look at what Paul says in verse 13. He says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. In other words, you see what Paul's telling us here is that these distinctions, they're not defined by culture. They're not things that change over time. They're actually rooted in creation. And remember, creation, this is before sin came into the world, before the curse and the curse of sin. Men and women both created equally in the image of God and yet different with different roles, different functions in God's plan of work in this world. That brings us to our final section. The church is an alternative community, a colony of heaven made up of people redeemed through the birth of a child. Paul goes on speaking about Adam and Eve to say this in verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now look, this passage right here, This is considered one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible to understand and interpret. Some would say this is the most difficult passage to understand and interpret in the entire Bible. And I'll tell you just truthfully, I know people who have chosen not to teach the book of 1 Timothy just so they didn't have to deal with the section that we just worked through right now. I'm not even kidding. They'll just be like, nothing to see here, folks. And they just move on, right? (laughs) And I can understand why. It's a touchy topic, but listen, at first glance, what Paul says here, it seems weird, doesn't it, right? It's like, is he saying what it looks like he's saying, which is that women through Eve are somehow responsible for bringing sin into the world, but they can earn their salvation by having children, Well, we know that that can't be what he's saying for several reasons. One of the reasons is that Paul himself wrote about how not every woman is called to get married and have children. He wrote about that in 1 Corinthians. And furthermore, this would be a very strange thing for Paul to say because it contradicts everything else he has ever said about how a person is saved, both in all his other letters and in this letter too. He's told us that we're saved by grace through faith and that it's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. So what is this thing he's saying here about women and childbirth? Well, the key to understanding this passage is actually found by looking at the original Greek text. You see, as we read this in English, there is something that has been lost in translation, which is really important. Now, it is found in some English translations of the Bible, and if you look at the original greek text you'll see it it's there very clearly in the original text the greek text there's a definite article definite article means like the word the Okay? So there's a definite article before the word childbirth. But in English, it reads super weird if you say, if you add an extra the in there, so that just for readability, some translations have taken out that definite article. But in the original text, it's there, which means Paul, in other words, is not talking about childbirth in general. He's talking about a specific birth of a particular child. So try to follow Paul's logic here. He says in verse 14, Eve— played a part in sin coming into the world. This is true, but it's also interesting because in his letter to the Romans, chapter 5, Paul tells us that Adam is the one who bears the ultimate responsibility even though Eve took the first bite of the forbidden fruit. So the woman, Eve, played a part in sin coming into the world, but, Paul tells us, womankind, if you will, also played a part in God's redemptive work of bringing salvation to the world because it was through a woman that Jesus, the Savior, was born. You see, going back all the way to the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we're told that the way that God would bring the Savior into the world, who would defeat Satan and save us from the curse of sin and death, that the way God would do that would be through a person. And this person, we were told, would be unique in this way. That he would be born as the seed of a woman, but not of a man. Let me, let me explain that phrase. Seed of a woman is really important. Because every other place where we read about someone having a seed, it's always a man. A man has a seed, right? So this child was born as the seed of this man, etc. That phrase is used multiple times in the Bible. But by telling us that the Savior would be the seed of a woman, what that tells us is that the Savior would be born of a woman, but not of a man. In other words, he will be born through a virgin birth. So when Paul says here that the woman will be saved through the childbirth, the birth of a child, what he's referring to is the birth of Jesus. He's hearkening all the way back to the first promise that God made back in Genesis, way back when sin and death entered into human history. And he's saying, women, you have a unique role to play. You have a unique dignity that God's given you in his work in the world because it was through a woman, not a man, that salvation came into the world through the birth of Jesus. It reminds us of something else Paul says similar to this in Galatians chapter 4 where he says, in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that you can receive that redemption of your life. You can become a child of God by putting your faith in Jesus. To put your faith in Jesus means to place your trust in who Jesus is, to put your trust in what Jesus has done for you in order to save you. And I want to encourage you to do that today, whether it's for the first time in your life or whether it's for the 500th time in your life. I want you to look to Jesus and put your trust in him. When you put your trust in Jesus, what happens is you become part of God's family. You become a child of God through faith in Jesus. God welcomes you in as his child and you become part of this alternative community, this colony of heaven here on earth made up of people who have been redeemed through the birth of a child. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray.
0: You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.